Have you guys here ever cried in front of a painting? <laughs> My mom bumped into a friend of hers at at the at some museum, and um, the woman was crying. And my mom said, what's the matter? And she said she's crying at the painting. My mom burst out laughing. <laughs> and, that, and they weren't friends ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I haven't. Welcome to our grand podcast. We recorded the Jacob Collins interview in Gina's empty apartment. We spent the entire day packing her things into a U-Haul truck. It was like the Art Grind packing party. It was uh, you and Josh and uh, Jason Wardy who runs the gallery at 11th Street Arts, which is connected to GCA, which is founded by Jacob Collins. So it's kind of the perfect end to my 15 years in, in New York. So Dina left New York the next day. <laughs> well, I did, I did. I took a bus with a suitcase full of sketchbook and a baby. I came into New York with a suitcase full of book and no baby, so so, so overall I kind of, I, I went. This week, Dina is back in New York because she has some important news to share with us. Uh, I'm actually teaching a workshop. So I'm teaching a workshop called using Instagram to take control of your art career. So if you're an artist and you need help using Instagram, uh, it basically explains everything you've ever wanted to know about Instagram for artists. So um, it's an Instagram algorithm and how to manipulate it to grow a large audience for your work, how to make sales, how to approach galleries, how to use hashtags correctly and what the right hashtags for your work are and actually what not to do because I feel like a lot of it is what not to do on Instagram. So I'll be teaching this through Draw New York, which is a pretty fantastic art group. And it'll be Sunday, October 20th from 11 to 2 at the National Arts Club, which is a totally beautiful venue. Just send me send me a DM on Instagram if you have any questions or register through Drawing New York's website. Excellent. So people can reach you at... At Dina Brodsky, yes. And Tan, you've taken my workshop. Uh, how was it? I have. I have to say, I was struggling with it in the beginning with my Nyan Projects account, and I was able to grow it from a couple hundred to over 20K right now. Because I listened to everything you told me to do. So, if you follow instructions well, you will do well. If you don't, good luck. <laughs> well, thank you, Tan. If any of you guys sign up, I'll, I'll see you Sunday. Yeah, now onwards to Jacob Collins, who we're enormously honored to have had as a guest. I couldn't think of a better way to end my 15 years in New York than by interviewing Jacob Collins, who I've admired for all of those 15 years. So here's the thing, as I try to tell this to people who are, whoever wants to listen to me, is that like if you find yourself trying to win an argument with people that you don't respect, then you're making a terrible mistake. And I, and I think that happens. It's like you, deep down, if someone would say, do you really think these people are valuable? Do you think that their cultural instincts are the right ones? And you, I mean, maybe you think that, but you obviously, probably, if you're in this, in our, this position I was in, uh, you probably don't. And then you want to be like, then why are you like trying to win against them? It's a big, wide world out there. And if you're trying to like defeat people, then that's the that's what it is to be a reactionary. It's to be it's to be like creating, building your life uh, around an idea of of like reacting to people that you think are wrong, yeah. and maybe that's good for like a pundit 
you know, but if you're an artist, you're sacrificing way too much because you spend, you look, you know, I imagine terrifying. You look back on your career, you're old and you look back and you think, my gosh, I did all these things that I didn't even like. I was just trying to win. <laughs> so, and I do think that can happen. Yeah, then, absolutely. Um, and, but on the other hand, I'm perfectly, and then so that happened uh, at a certain point where people started to show up in my life just like pop into my world by accident and that thing started to happen and turned into some of the uh, schools that I then things that were just little coalitions of of little other friends and artists very young or different kinds of people all just kind of working together trying to figure it out together I think there's room for everyone like there's an audience and room for everything you could conceive of essentially and like, I, I don't understand the, the fights about this stuff so much, you know, almost on religious grounds. It is very religious. Yeah. Because you went a different route. So right. Oh, right. Because you, you didn't never had go those to, fights. You just went to the league for a bit and you just had personal relations with your teachers. And that's great. That's the right way to do it. People who go to regular art school, I mean, you know how it is. There, there is an awful uh-huh. lot of taking a beating. Mm-hmm. Which, as Dina was saying, yeah, you learn how to be resilient, and that's really good. And you don't want to be what's that? people can people can go whatever route they want, but it can it, it 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 you could recommend that a person wants to get in there and see what's the world is like, and then choose to go their own way. I feel like the onus on in my time was sort of too. Like I remember Grimaldi one time. I was drawing and he was like, that's a great drawing. He's like, fine, but you got to take on the entire art history. Like, like get reckon with all of it. And I thought that was really sort of op, like exciting to me. Like, yeah, I could do it all. Really? I, I God, I get really demoralized. Like really? Like, I can't just make a drawing. I have to take on all What's of your our time? history. Yeah. It's your time in history. At least reckon with all of it at some level, you know, think about what's that? What's this? Well, you reckon with it and you know it and then you take some and then you, and you leave some. So where I went to undergrad, at least, you were like very strongly discouraged from making the kind of work all of us here make, meaning anything that looked like anything else. Mm-hmm. Me and my sister went to the same undergrad mm-hmm. and then the same grad school. And from the time I was there to the time that she was there, like three, four years later, she had to have a lot less of those fights. And, and, um, and, the, and that was between like early 2000s and mid 2000s? Yep. Um, I think that's true. I think, and it was the, I guess, the sort of propagation through the culture of postmodernism. You know, in some ways, so weird. It's like horribly paradoxical. I feel like more affinity to the mid-century modernists than I do to postmodernism, partially because they were like... The stance. Well, they had a sense of the thing itself, the art. I mean, they were all so full of shit but there was something about the idea that the art object is a sort of an is a thing worthy of spiritual uh, consideration yeah and that it in something inhered into the painting which was its power mm-hmm. and they were all like full of a whole lot of exaggerated language about how emotional the, the this painting was and it was deep and sublime and moving and uh, I just don't think after after that breaks, part of the breaking of that, with like we talk about Warhol or other people that are part of, it's making fun of it. So now it would be almost 
like for the most part you the other things are substituted other than the the qualities of the art object in itself and how it was made they're all right. the, the irony is like i'm i'm all about how it's made and that's the, the abstract expressionists were all about how it was made absolutely and then yeah. you if you talk about in the contemporary art world about how it's made they'd be like yeah no <laughs> it's yeah. like well, all it these other things exactly. it's made. it doesn't matter right. if an artist did it, it it's supposed you know, to be about the image like what is it of did it, uh, so when they say to you sure you can draw but what do you have to say I mean, if you somebody were to say that to like Philip Guston, you know, it, it would be like you don't understand what the quality is. Isn't something about like the subject matter? There's this sort of other super powerful thing, which is art. And if you don't care about art, you know, then you don't have to care about art. You can talk about journalism, but this is yeah. this is art, not journalism. But I think that's lost. So, so it's like it, it, it's almost like an irreverent time, or. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no. So in that, it's, in this irreverent time, it's awfully hard to then build up a whole lot of cultural energy to get people to loop back around to the Absolutely. idea that the thing itself and how it's made is that the sort of emotion and intelligence uh, that goes into the making of the thing, right. other than what it's a picture of, right? It, whether what it's a picture of expresses the sort of satisfactory uh, content. Or whatever it's whether it's political or art referential or whatever mm-hmm. that that's it's just that that's going to be the only thing that people that- well what I mean like in this moment what is the point of making slow images I mean we're all doing it but I wrestle with that daily like what is the point of I this? don't I I it sounds crazy but I'm sort of I advocate not wrestling with that. In the 70s, everybody's therapist encourages them to ask them if they're really happy in their marriage. And everybody gets gets divorced. divorced. (laughs) Right, because maybe you're not supposed to ask that. (laughs) But does that border on ignorance is bliss? (laughs) Well, I think it's it's like, you know, here's one thought is that people who are generally almost all religions have in them the prescription against judging. You're not supposed to judge yourself. Uh-huh. You know, you're you're supposed to be like it's a, actually it's a sin. That's God's job. You, you know, they, he'll judge you when you're done. Right. right and right. you don't do it in between. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I think uh, I mean I'm not religious, so I'm, again as, as usual <laughs> speaking from a position of ignorance. But um, and then I think in Eastern religions, the whole a lot of the point is to be is to be able to sort of break out of the anxiety of self judgment and and to move into sort right. of a more universal acceptance. That's again, what do I know? Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, the the pressure in for whatever reason on art students is to like judge yourself all the time. Not only what you're doing, how you're doing it, but whether whether that you're doing it's an okay thing. And right. I feel like, ouch! It's like that. That's uh, not. A, I just don't. I think I, that's. I actually know what you mean. It's, so, so it's almost like you, but like it's worth doing because you believe that it's worth doing. Once you start really shaking it, kind of like you're. That happy. is very post. And maybe like you're idea. happy in a marriage as long as you're you believe you're happy in the marriage. And once you start questioning, you commit. Uh, you make the commitment, and there you are. We're th- yeah, that means all right. There's <laughs> three divorced people here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and one who's like chronically single. So yeah, really exactly. <laughs> we're not. Yeah, we're yeah, questioners yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, not the right crowd for this thing. 
sometimes I get students who are like a basket case. They're coming from a whole lot of art school and sometimes they draw really, really badly. I've had this a number of times. And then I, by accident, I come across something they did when they were in high school and it's super good. And I'm like, what happened? And then I realized that they learned to like question themselves with this kind of intense anxiety and they're super and they have all this anxiety in them when they're drawing and they're like i on all as you you know if, if you know when you teach them you come around and you see you don't even say something you just look and say oh that's an interesting start i'm curious to how that'll go and then like two hours later it's just like the whole thing is just like kind of gotten really bad <laughs> and uh i know that and you're like in so sometimes i'll like almost almost as if some sort of like therapy i'll like want to ask and find out and talk and a lot of the time it's like they're they're like it's almost like they're they're speaking they're 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 like a, a they're channeling the voices that they've been hearing and i hear them saying things that don't sound exactly to me like their voice and they're saying, I thought I really ought to, you know, I was, I felt like I ought to, and like, mm. and it's all like, I have to question, I really have to question. And, and I, I somehow like, I can help sometimes to get people to be not questioning. And it feels like her- heresy. It's like, what? Not questioning? What are you crazy? Because her- questioning is like, that's the, you know, basis of, what it is to be an artist. Well, it's a basis, but you know, making a fine piece of art is also. So, and then I'll make analogies about like, you you're, you want to be super open and questioning. Like when I was young, I had friends who were like architecture students. In the beginning, they would draw like super loose and on those yellow sheets and you put another one down and, and it gradually gets tighter and tighter. And you want to be willing to change your mind later, but you're not going to like in this kind of spasmodic way, just like move things around because you feel like it. I mean, people will do what they want. People come to study with me because they want to know what I think. So I don't want to offer this as a prescription for people who want to do something else. But I feel like I can coach people into like being compartmentalizing the periods of, uh, of, you know, wide open openness of, of like, I don't know what I want to do, but then like pull, tighten in and close in and say, okay, is this really what I want? And then like sort of make that commitment to doing this thing. And I would say that would be like an analogy to your life. You're like, at a certain point, you can say, I've decided to do this. So Marshall is someone who does, you know, like he paints very, very well. Um, you, You know, you kind of know that you paint very well. And yet you say, you know, like, so you wrestle, like you're wrestling internal, you know, your internal conflict is about whether it's worth painting at all. Whether it's worth painting the way you're painting. Whether images even mean anything. See, I have that too. That's me. It drives me crazy. What, well, then let me ask you, what is... But you're what, not even... You're young still. I'm having... I'm in midlife crisis, so I'm allowed to have I ha- that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was doing Marshall, that at Marshall's, Marshall's, Marshall's kind of in a permanent state of crisis. <laughs> but what about... So what is... Jacob, what is the power of an image today in your, in your mind? Like a painting. What... When I make a painting right uh-huh. now, what is the potential of that thing? 
does it have any potential? I, I would say, I guess, maybe not. Hmm. Maybe I feel like there's a freedom to saying no. I always feel that freedom like, in saying let no, it, too. Let yeah. it not. I, yeah, exactly. Like, maybe it's a poem. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a poem that's in a book that somebody might never open. But if someone does open it and they find it, and it's this little poem and they read it and they don't understand it and then turn to the so I get some other book. Oh, that's, that's so it. great. And another person might actually read it and then something might catch their eye and then they'll read it again and they'll then they'll want to look and then they'll be wonder what it is and then they'll and it'll gradually start to sort of percolate up mm-hmm. to them. And so that person's experience that that person has a little access into the into your you, you, there you are. Like, and if they find you, they find you. And if they don't, they don't. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that to me, I think, I mean, I have, I, I'm full of, you know, vanity and grandiosity also, but I feel like as an antidote that a certain kind of thinking about the form, the, the, this, the art form as being humble is a kind of a way to protect myself from getting totally just sort of breaking down out of the anxiety of trying to do something that may not be the thing to do. Hmm. It's like we want to be like growing up, we probably all were like fantasizing about, you know, those stories of like guy 18 foot block of marble that Michelangelo got. And everything mm-hmm. was like, like a generalization that I, f- I feel like men have a lot more self-doubt a lot of like the women I talk to or at least like I don't feel it by the way like I don't feel I, I mean I feel doubt I feel, I feel <laughs> doubt about a lot of a lot of my life but as far as painting goes like I believe that it's worth doing because I believe that it's worth doing I'm, right. I'm married to it mm-hmm. you know the, right. uh, I feel I feel doomed to it in a way <laughs> <laughs> you're you know you're, you're right. cursed to it I'm cursed to it <laughs> But that, that's not to say that I don't feel it's beautiful. I mean, I feel like most of the people I admire were kind of doomed to their art, to very little acclaim. I mean, painters, musicians, but, filmmakers, but I mean, all of it. The acclaim part doesn't matter. Only It matters only as far as kind of if you are starving, then you're not really making art. Well, that's you're what I'm talking about. about. Yeah, but, like but, but, even but starving. But I mean, like, if you can kind of like like feed yourself then the point is something else like mm-hmm. um like it prevent you know like starving prevents you from you know like like from painting the like jacob think- what do you think makes a good painting i'm very interested in the idea of art forms so uh, um and an art what i mean by a form is is a kind of uh, some sort of structure of of the activity, so uh, it would depend on what the form is. So, for instance, like if I were to say, if you were to say, what do you think makes a good uh, ball sport player? Mm-hmm. You know, it would be like, well, you know, having a really good jump shot's really great, but if you're playing soccer. 
that's not not very useful. Not very useful. <laughs> so then the question is, what are the subforms? What are people actually trying to do? Or, you know, you could say it on any forms, like the various beverages. If you're thinking about, like, you know, if you're at a beer tasting and somebody gives you a glass of wine, it's like, it doesn't, it's not the right thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's almost like how the, the form and content are married and something right. quality. Right. So I would say what makes uh, a good painting, I guess, has to do with what, what is the person trying to do uh-huh. and what, what's the form? What's their form? Um, and, uh, cause I think that's a universal, I think it's like, you know, there's a Persian miniature that can be super beautiful. There's like an early 20th century kind of broadly painted expressionistic sort of naturalism, uh, like, you know, some kind of whatever Zorn kind of thing. And it's like, what do they have in common? It's like to sort of, for me to create a, a catch all to describe what's good. I just don't think I, I could do that. That sort of fits in a little bit with the sort of idea of the modesty of the of the project. It's like it's not going to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. That the, you you find something you want to do, and like Dina was saying, and you just you just go with it. And this is what I'm doing, and I can't win the you know I'm, I, I'm not going to get out there and do this painting that everyone's going to say is great because some people don't like this kind of thing. Other people mm-hmm. do, and so it's it'll be. You can be like a super great practitioner of some something that you do that may be, of course, on some level, like, you know, forms have subforms because different people doing what would be seen as the same form do it a little differently. And ultimately, the divisions go down to the individual. So, of course, every artist has a different set of forms. So you can't exactly compare, but you kind of can. Hmm. So where do, where do you see the ideal version of your the perfect art world? Well, partially, I I've, as uh, Dina said, I I have a natural kind of a secessionist outlook, which is really what I mean to say is that I I feel like the world is a big place, and I sort of feel maybe I'd model it more less on the art world and more on the music world. Okay, and so the art world has a kind of a uh, it's a kind of a unitary uh, uh, phenomenon. There's the art world. And this season, everybody loves, I don't know who what their names are, this person. And they're all getting flown to Venice this year. And uh, Whereas in the music world, you can be a big star in the opera, or you can be a bluegrass star, or you can be a pop star, of which there's probably five or six or ten different significant categories. And they're, they all like sort of exist in kind of, they're each in their own space. Uh, and nobody feels so you don't get like opera singers, although there's a little bit of that. Don't think, oh, oh, I'd, we'd, I'd better be a little bit more like Taylor Swift because she sells more records. Um, I think that the art, I'd like to see an art world that's more like that. And that's really what I, what's my sort of project in my kind of art political project is, is, would it be possible to convince people out there that the, that there could be a healthy and serious market. That's not the art world, but it's an art world where people might be, where they could be encouraged to, especially, and this is why I'm so, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in forms, they could get big, they could get to be connoisseurs of something in particular. And in my thinking, 
the connoisseurship is utterly dependent on category. So there's nothing that people are connoisseurs of that doesn't have a lot of categories. And the art world in, is completely category free. I think the, for, I don't know why, it's hard to say why, but I think that it, and it's kept category free kind of on purpose or something. But I'd love to sort of have a, you know, for what I'm interested in, like, here's this, here's like these people doing this kind of thing. This is what they're trying to do to answer your question, Marshall. It's like what, so the, the collector would say, what's a good painting? You could say, I don't fucking know, mm-hmm. but these people here are trying to do I this, and these are the these. This is the framework within which they're trying to do it, mm-hmm. and they'll explain it to you, or I'll explain it to you, or someone will, and then you'll be able to decide for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you know some fancy, you know, Oregon vintner is making wine in some way, and he spends a good amount of time explaining to the wine journalists or the wine retailers what he's all about. And ultimately, that information gets to the ears of the connoisseurs who then know about it and then can decide if they think they're doing that. Yeah, so, I, I like that. I like that world a lot where it's, it's subcategories where people can, can exist within. Uh-huh. Why do you think the art world is so, like... I mean, and it's just alien to the general public, you know? Like, I was thinking, I bet my dad couldn't even say what a Van Gogh painting is, you know? And I don't think he's in the minority. Like, it's just this alien sort of highbrow thing to people. That's interesting. But that is a good question for us painters. I remember uh, Samuel Evanson would say, he would bring, well, Utah, where you're from, his, like, family from Utah into the Met. And their number one question to him, and he was laughing about it, was, why is this a good painting to Samuel? And so Samuel would have to kind of tell them. But then he's like, I don't think anyone's ever listened to a Beatles song and said, why is this a good song? Like, it's just, it's a weird question that paintings have around them. But I think maybe because Beatle, the people that we know, grew up with the Beatles and all they grew up completely immersed in that form. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's everywhere. It, it's their form. Whereas if somebody were to play like a song that everybody loved from like the 1400s, yeah. but nobody listens to it, uh, it would be natural. Or if, if, if somebody were to, or like I go to like, I went to Turkey 20 years ago and the whole thing was like a carpet learning experience. So by the end, I had a little bit of the ability to tell what was terrible because I was trying to sell you carpets. We, it's about forms. And, it, the, and the, to your point, connoisseurship, it takes right. a little bit of the, right. the knowledge. So everybody is a Beatles connoisseur, whether they yeah, everybody want it or not, because they, they know it and they know all the other things that they're referencing. They know they, they can get the fact that, oh, I see this is a slight like – funny British like little spoof on country and Western. And that's awesome and cool the way they did that. But that is an awful lot of presupposition that you're bringing to that. It's a big baseline. A 19th century person or, or you know, a 17th century Dutch person looking at, you know, one of those paintings, they're going to have a huge visual vocabulary. They're not going to ask that question. Have have you guys (laughs) here ever cried in front of a painting? 
Jacob. Yes. Um, <laughs> my mom bumped into a friend of hers at at the at some museum, and um, the woman was crying. And my mom said, what's the matter? And she said she's crying at the painting. My mom burst out laughing. <laughs> and, that, and they weren't friends ever again. <laughs> um, um, I haven't. I haven't. I've cried. I cry every single Disney movie I ever go to. I'm just sobbing the whole time. That part of Homeward Bound when you see oh, the old dog with makeup and oh, the old dog comes over the hill. <laughs> right, but paintings. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've cried at a show before. You have? Uh, once. It was because it was, I was so like high off of it. It was a still life show. Oh, I thought you said you were high. I was like, well, that makes no, sense. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was all no, that was, was, uh, It was a summer before I went to the academy. I was in Dublin, like I was biking through the UK. And there was some Dublin's kind of like and I had an overall kind of a miserable time there, but I was there was a show of not Catan, but one of those Spanish Melendez. Melendez, uh-huh. yes, it was a Melendez show. Uh-huh. And like it just the way he painted I I I, I it was like it was the, the like paint quality mm. and the texture of it and he cared so much about like the rind on a melon that it like it actually made me cry. No. I can see him caring. That's yeah. That's like, so nice. Like, like caring more about this, like, melon rind or about, like, the skin of a peach than most mm-hmm. people do about, like, bride and her wedding day or something, the, the, uh, or their newborn baby or the... So let's get back to Jacob. Like, what gives you the, the screaming nightmares? I feel a little bit, um, kind of a little flat, a little lost. I had a kind of a supercharged energy from when I was a teenager and, uh, it just sort of shot me forward and I was full of just so much uh, like, you know, it was really so simple. I just wanted to be able to draw and paint just a little bit, just decently so that I didn't have to like hang my head in shame um, by historical standards. Um, And uh, I just was so unbelievably driven. So it was a funny thing. It was a, a very, uh, um, like a very sort of humble in that it was just like, of course I was thinking about these greatness and great artists, but it was humble in that I was just like, I just want to be like in the game just so that I can feel like I'm not just a total 20th century, like sucky idiot like everyone else was as far as I could see. Um, and then, uh, but I just worked so hard at it. And then weirdly, I, some, it's like I kind of succeeded. And, uh, I succeeded in, in some way that I felt like I did kind of get to some level. And it took me, like, it was only like about 10 years ago or 12, 15 years ago. Um, and then it's sort of in the trajectory. So that was like a 25 year, 20 year like blast of just this single thing. So to answer the question, I'm a little bit kind of flat because it's like, you know, it's like in the kind of to paraphrase Inigo Montoya, you know, <laughs> it's like I've been in the revenge business. I've been in the learning how to paint like not 
like a sucky 20th century bad drawer so long I hardly know what to do with myself so I have a little bit of a feeling of like and then it's midlife crisis in some level of you know not knowing exactly I don't know I don't know what I want I wish it does keep me up it bothers me that I don't I don't I wish I had a kind of I was like I I, I, I mean, it's always been hard. It's always been, even when I, I'm lying to myself when I long for how great it was 20 years ago and 15 years ago when I was so driven and passionate because it was all, it's always been like full of like, you know, procrastination and self-loathing. I look through old journals. I always keep journals and it's like, you never write in your journal when you're feeling great so it's always like it's all and then I was like oh yeah that was pretty bad that was pretty bad that was pretty bad but then it was also good but I do wish I wish I I just somehow I'm feeling like I want there I want to have the kind of I guess I feel also because I'm what am I almost 55 years old so I sort of feel like I'm in the back end of it all sort of it's a one minute you're like your whole life's ahead of you then you're thinking okay how many years left do I have to be making my best art? And then I can't physically, I can't paint the way I used to. I used to work like 17 hours a day, which is the funnest thing in the world. Now I like try to do that for a couple of days and my shoulder's out for two months. So I'm like, I'm just not the man I was in some ways. And so I'm like looking for what am, what do I, what's my, and maybe that's just a younger man's thing, that sense of my, passionate like that driving mania i had a mania and i and i wish i had i wish i I wish i was like i really and people who knew me remind me of that like i was that's who i was i had mania and i but i wasn't manic depressive i just had the manic part (laughs) and it was so great i mean it was hard because i was all driven and i was all dissatisfied always but and uh, maybe I'll, f- I'm just, I would love to tune in. I, I just don't, I'm not tuned into that, you know. Like, do you have like a vision of what in 15 years, if you made a huge, like, personal growth, what would that would look like? I don't know. Maybe it's not a huge personal growth. Maybe I would be, I think that's my instinct is to think that way, but I want to be open. Who knows what kind of growth it could be? It could be a just interior growth based on a small adjustment, or it could be some, big thing i don't know what it is you've also been creating your own art world right does that feel good or well you, it or, does or it... but it's funny i'm i i'm i'm conflicted about it because i always w- was drawing more out of it than i was putting in in some way i felt like i had infinite resources i could like teach and mentor and then i would you get super talented students and next thing you know they're like giving they're showing you and it still happens all the time i mean like it's kind of terrifying to be sitting at the top of the perched on the top of gca where every kid comes in and two years later they're drawing so well and it's just like you know it's that's weird you know (laughs) and i love doing that but on the other hand i'm like you know partially also i'm i'm the sort of in a significant figure in a world that's about learning how to draw and 
I mean, with then the idea that that leads to whatever life you make it. But then partially, maybe I need, it's like, it's, that was my project, was learning how to draw for 25 years. You're doing so much more than that, though. Right, I know that. connecting so many people on this planet together. Right, but my selfish self doesn't want to be helping other people, wants to be just trying to fulfill my wanting to make my own paintings and be in my, that, and make things that are... But, but, do, but do you think you'd be, I, I, I mean, I don't know you very well, but do you think if you just had the art and not kind of the universe that you talked into being, well, uh, do, do you think maybe. you'd be happier? May, I don't think so. I mean, uh. I, 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 I used to think, or maybe it's not true, I think I, it is a personality of mine. I have kind of maybe leadership or some something, but... I, I used to think that I, I wished that the, there had been this world and then because another side of me, I have a rebellious spirit and I would have loved to be able to be a person sitting at the edge of an intact world and riffing on it rather than having to be the poster boy of anything because it just feels like that's what I would want. But there's nothing, there was nothing for me that I would have wanted. There wasn't anything intact so then I had to like make the thing and then I don't want to be a subversive. It's like crazy if I were to be subversive or, or being like mixed. It's just, so, I mean, I don't think I'm a subversive person, but maybe a little bit, I don't know. How do you reconcile like having a family and your personal art goals and then a school? Like it's a lot to take on. It's a lot. Well, it's possible that I'm not. It's possible. What I guess what I was going towards is I made years ago when I first started teaching. I remember just saying, as an absolute matter of principle, if there's a moment when I think that this is starting to make my painting less. I'll just bail. I'll just close down the thing. I won't do it anymore. Uh, I would just teach. If I had a show, I just wouldn't teach for a couple months. But I always had the students around. So I would just be like, and then I would have other people who were really good. And then I'd say like, okay, well, you teach now. And I'll Mm -hmm. just be over here painting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but the painting, the, the, the teaching also was great because I would have some incredible, somebody who was amazing. And I would be, teaching them i come around to critique them and i'd be like most of my critique was be like trying to figure out what the hell they had done like like, talking through like figuring out what it was inside to synthesize their insights because it was a kind of a group effort everyone was figuring like in the 90s there was a lot of figuring it all out Mm -hmm. um people would come from other places where they had studied with other people Mm -hmm. or they would just be super talented and you know, you teach a person sometimes something and um, you don't even know what you're saying. I mean, I had that as a student. I would, a teacher would, like I was saying about my experience at the academy, years later, or not even years later, sometimes pretty quickly, I'd realize that teacher said something that was really true, but they didn't know what they meant. They didn't know. They probably heard it from their teacher and they said it because they thought it was the thing they were supposed to say. But that's amazing because that, then I would like un, sort of add water with like freeze dried art wisdom hmm. and you add your own water to it all of a sudden. It gets, and then I saw myself doing that to my students. I'd, I'd, I would be like, what the hell is that? And they would say, because you said it. And I'd be like, oh, 
whoa, <laughs> that's what that means. <laughs> so smart people. And so that's where I felt like as a, in my doing all this sort of institution building, I was always, I was at the, the hub of all the spokes with all these people who work so great. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting more than anybody. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I don't know. I mean, certainly I'm not this, this GCA is so much bigger than me now. I'm just like, you know, I'm sort of just in it now. So I'm not, it, it does, it's a great relief that it's not dependent on me. Um, yeah, it's a super, in some ways, super how I imagined it. It really is a lot what I was hoping it would be. The only difference is, and this is my sort of big project that I really want to change, is that the people who are starting to really get good aren't making enough money directly from their work. But also because the feedback loop between the world and the, the artist is, uh, is, is, has to be working in the world. Collectors who buy your work, they make you better. It's a kind of that, you know, people start to, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people who are now coming up who, who are pretty, who have a lot of deep feeling and and thoughts about painting i've spent a lot of time looking at great old paintings and have looked at the world and are full of uh, insight and tremendous skill and and the practice of working with this colleagues so all getting good but without the the it sounds like i'm not trying to be some sort of like you know free marketeer necessarily but without that market of selling it, Although that can be certainly corrupting. And I know it's not my favorite thing in the world, this feeling of pleasing people who just happen to have more money. But it's also a really, really, I mean, it's like the Renaissance is all about those, you know, idiot cardinals who were (laughs) paying big ducats for frescoes and then all of a sudden everybody is like amping it up and in 25 30 50 years it's like you know it gets mm-hmm. big so that's i feel like that would be a great uh, thing sorry our side of the art world is low in ducats yeah or, or how we pronounce that yeah <laughs> there's there's not enough gold gold going into yeah. this uh yeah. yeah, but it's a, it's like almost that second layer. There's a certain level of competition in a school that you'll people will rise to certain occasions, and right. then if the art market would reward that, that would be right. a whole other. Tier. Then a whole new thing would happen. Yeah, people would. I think right, and and again, I would say. Like for me, it wouldn't even have to be the art market. It's not as if I want like the Whitney to all of a sudden fire its you know, creators and you know it, it just has to be an art market. And it can it could be really small. It doesn't. It could be tiny. It could be like a hundred collectors. Mm-hmm. You know who were and that it's not. It makes it doesn't. It doesn't even seem like it would be necessarily very hard. Right. And they they just have to be given. A language, a set of categories, and a handful of people who want to, who would enjoy some, uh, Parker, the Robert Parker, the wine guy. He just kind of invented, I, my, I don't know, again, speaking of ignorance, that guy in some time, was it in the 1970s or something? Something like that. Am I wrong? 
I don't know. I don't know the story. He's sort of invented this whole field of American, like, teaching connoisseurs the kinds of things that you can care oh, about, right, learn right, about, right. talk about. Mm-hmm. So then even if it's a little bit phony where people talk because about... that was smoky and... Tannins and a raspberry finish and all that. So, but it's some, you know, if people are a little pretentious, that's not in any way the worst thing in the world. That's fine. Right. You know, people try hard to do difficult, challenging cultural things that's mm-hmm. just a risk i'm perfectly willing for people to stretch a little bit and you know at some point at the end the you know the early 20th century very you know the very beginning of the 20th century the richest american america was becoming this you know you know it was the american century and the very wealthiest americans in some kind of cabal just decided to devolve their patronage upon exclusively the most avant-garde art. Crazy. No idea about this. There's this, a British historian wrote a book that called, I would recommend it, I think it's an incredible piece of history called The uh, Woman Named Frances Stoner Saunders, about how the American intelligence uh, was anxious that the European intellectuals were leaning towards the Soviets. You know, Picasso, you know, uh, you know, maybe... Um, you know, Sartre, you know, were, were uh, a bunch of uh, commie-loving peaceniks. And the commies came out of World War II smelling like roses because they both were the sort of part of the resistance and to the extent that they weren't, they were really good at selling themselves as having sure, been yeah. the, the great but, resistance but, but, but fighters. really their death count was as high as the fascists. Uh, right, no, they right. Uh, I'm not, whatever, but they came out of it with the, with the successful propaganda as having been the great freedom fighters. And so the CIA and, and whatever, the American, uh, the peak, the pinnacle of the American political establishment had this terrible anxiety that after, you know, all talking originally about like, uh, how we're going to stop the, you know, the, they worried that the Red Army was going to come pouring through Europe. We could never stop them. All of a sudden they realized the Europeans might vote, vote vote the communists in. So then they thought, there's no way we're going to convince, you know, Harry Truman was famous for like uh, making fun of modern art. And uh, then he was like pilloried in the, in the sophisticated press. And the Europeans were like, oh my God, these Americans are hopeless. So then they came up with a brilliant idea is we've got to have American art. We have to have it be more avant-garde than European art. So this like great triumph of american mm. the new york school was pushed hard by the by the state department by the, the cia oh, and all crazy. in order so that the europeans would feel that americans were more sophisticated than russians it's like the missile gap but oh, it was the avant-garde gap that's and then so we crazy. and we, they said so they were fi- fi- like financing cultural magazines and they would have like concerts of like american avant-garde music the kind that everybody hates but or and then they would have a giant show of you know american abstract artists and it was infuriating totally picasso was really mad about like all of the american art that was like getting a huge so amount of funding crazy and so people look back and wish that the art world were more authentic the avant-garde but it was like nah, not 
not so much. So it's like if people think now it's just a bunch of, you know, sleazy hedge fund managers just investing in art as if it's futures. Well, you go back in the 50s, it was people doing geopolitical games. And, and then you go back further and you start to look at the actual anatomy of the armory show and who were the players. And this is really, uh, uh, I agree very strongly with Dina, is that you can look at the how this whole thing went. And from the beginning, it's institutional. It's an institutional avant-garde. And just the way right now people can talk about what goes on and, you know, with, with everybody jetting over to Venice or Basel or wherever. And it's people who feel like this avant-garde art is just an instrument of power. And if these people are longing for a period when the 20th century avant-garde wasn't, they're, they're, I think they're completely wrong. It's always mm. been an instrument of power. And I think that, uh, whatever the motivations, they can be simply making extra money or they can be using it as a political tool. Or I would say at the very beginning, it would be using it as a, a kind of, uh, device. I think it was in some ways designed to sort of disenfranchise and demoralize. Hmm. Because there was like the at the very end of the nineteenth century, it was an extremely politically unstable time. the The plutocrats were very anxious about the like uh, what it, this sort of roiling uh, political movements like American populism which expressed itself very strongly and there was a sense of like we have to change the banking system we have to change we have to this this iniquity is un, unstable and we and so there was a sense of like looking to create just i see it as one of many many other things that somehow came about through the actions of this particular interlock of of uh, you know this the old the old 19th century plutocracy and that many of them have similar functions which is to kind of entrench one group into power uh-huh. and then create and what thing I to- it, I totally what it really does is it in you can see that after the, the uh, sort of the world the european american world and the, after it became secular and there was no longer a um a kind of actual religion, the art really stepped into the space. And so you get, like, in the 19th century, the cathedrals that were built were really the art museums. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there still were cathedrals getting built, but, like, these all around, there's, like, these beautiful classical art museums getting built and the you know growing middle class took great pride in art as this is like the idea of the people who you know those people were very very eager to Mm self-educate and people would go to the salon it was a huge event and so it was whether it should have been, I don't know whether it was a good thing or not, but people took art seriously and they wanted to know about it. And they went to the salon and they would buy paintings if they could or they would buy reproductions of the big paintings at the, the you know, salon. And, and I think that the idea of making the art, which was felt to be somewhat of a in the space of religion, meaning it was culturally unifying and in the way religion serves culture by being the touchstone that everybody has in common mm-hmm. it had that and the process would be almost like you could say it would be like reversing uh it would be making it inscrutable in the way that like gutenberg and the protestant reformation in europe had made uh religion scrutable it made it legible you could read it you could decide for yourself and then later on when art supplants religion uh in 
uh, as as in some ways takes the function. Mm-hmm. What this does as you go into the 20th century is make it completely inscrutable, turn it back into a mystery cult. So then the only way you'll know what it means is if you have some high priest come and explain it to you completely mm-hmm. alienating, uh, disenfranchising the people from a culture that they felt like they owned. And then who owns it is, and you see again in the structure of, of, uh, of, of the market, the big shift that we all see happen then is you get the end of the salon, which to some degree you have a system that goes all the way back from the guilds, from the beginning of time where the artists to some extent control the market. The, they control the guilds to, to some degree. They control the, the salon. They decide what gets hung where. They decide. And when that ends, it gets replaced by the modern gallery system and gallerists are ultimately in the pockets of financiers. So, and the f- irony is that the modernism is sold as emancipation. Give us a word of advice. So, advice? You know, think, uh, okay, look, okay. I, I think a lot of people feel lost, and a yes. lot of people, people feel a little hopeless sometimes, yes. like Marshall looking at the square, Roscoe Squares or whatever. I was like, don't look at Roscoe Squares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, one, <laughs> the, one, the one thing you come away from, from Jacob Collins' interview, don't it's look It's like at my wrestling square. coach when, when uh, in high school, you'd be like, oh, God, coach, my, 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 my arm really hurts. It's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, does it hurt when you do this? And he would bend his arm and, he, and you'd be like, you do that. And, he'd be, and you'd say, yeah, it does. And he said, then don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of my advice of the day, which is like, don't, to- don't torture yourself. Find what you want and find, and I'm a big believer in, fellow, in kindred spirits, you know, fellow travelers. Find people that you are, that you feel you can support each other. And, uh, not every young artist is in a sort of a scene with other people, or sometimes they're in scenes. And again, this are, you know, sometimes they're in scenes where they feel like it's important to be surrounded by people that hate them because it'll make them somehow more sophisticated. Right. But I would say you don't need that. You can find people. You don't need, and sometimes if you're, if you're an artist that wants to do something, Deep down in your heart, you want to do something beautiful and lovely. Like that's just like the same thing you wanted when you were a kid. Uh, I mean, you don't want to be a like an emotional cripple that you where you're not like growing. But sometimes you really still do want to do something beautiful. And if you surround yourself with cynics uh, who make you ashamed of that, then you can move away from those people and try to find people that are. You know, this is, this is one thing I figured out years ago. I had a couple times in a row, I found myself, and I always thought of myself as a very, very, like, sort of un, in the kind of a strong person, like, you know, not tough, but like, I just felt like I had my deep keel and I was doing what I was doing. And I found like a couple times in a row, I was in my paintings, I was impersonating completely unconsciously artists that I was around that I didn't like at all. And I realized, okay, if I'm like this impressionable, then that's just like people are super impressionable. People are just going to conform. Oh, that's what I was struggling for. I always thought I was a nonconformist. And here I was like as conformist, just conforming. So then I re, I re kind of configured my idea, which is let me, uh, find 
or help to cultivate a group of people that I would aspire to conform to, then if I conform to them, it'll only be making me better. Mm-hmm. So... Thank you so much for yeah, like like thank you so thank much you. for coming. Actually, Marshall Tanjash, thank you for letting me do one last New York episode. Uh, like like this this I'll, I'll, this has been absolutely awesome. Uh, like, uh, thank you all for having me. It's been so fun talking. Um, I hope I made sense. You, and, you, uh, you, you're fantastic. You are, I, I wish I, I wish I met you earlier. Oh. I, like I, 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 <laughs> I feel like we, I feel like 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 we could, we could have talked such good conspiracy theories. Oh my gosh! Well, it's never too late. <laughs> um, and the name of this episode: Never Too Late for Conspiracy. <laughs> An interview with Jacob Collins. for listening to the Arc Rhyme podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at Arc Rhyme Podcast. You can leave comments on the thread or DM us there. We usually see them. Also, Facebook, we're at Arc Rhyme Podcast. You can uh, leave comments, future questions for our guests and such there. Our website is www.arcrhyme.com artgrindpodcast.com definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post off the artist and don't be shy to donate us money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone bye, bye.